0: Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well being of your staff to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, chairman of the sound agency and five time TED speaker, with over 100 million views for my TED talks about sound. And I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well being. One of the most profound and possibly long lasting effects of the COVID pandemic is the change in the way people work, especially those who were working in open plan offices. WFH has become a familiar acronym as people discover all the joys and the challenges of distributed solo working from home. As 2021 unfolds and the vaccines, hopefully, turn back the tide, the big question is, does the traditional office have a future? And if so, what is it? We're going to explore this theme in a series of shows with some of the most expert thinkers and researchers in this field. This is the first of these conversations with Professor Jeremy Myerson. Jeremy holds the Hamlin Chair of Design at the Royal College of Art in London. He's a writer, a researcher, a speaker and an expert who focuses on design, especially in the workplace. He's written more than a dozen books about various aspects of design and the office and he's also a director of WorkTech Academy, the world's leading online knowledge platform and member network exploring the future of work and workplace. Jeremy, it's lovely to talk to you again, and I'm fascinated in a short while to ask you about the new post-COVID office. But I think given that you've done so much work over the years on this, it would be really interesting to ask you about the history of the office, something we kind of take for granted, but it wasn't always there. When did it start and what phases has it been through?
1: Well, the history of the office is interesting because it's relatively compact. It's probably about 150 years old, if that. And really uh, the office emerged as a byproduct of the industrial revolution. First we had factories and industrialization, and then we had the bureaucracy uh, that goes with manufacturing. And that was the, really the birth of, of the office. So we're really looking uh, at the 1880s, you know, 1870s, when we see the first purpose-built offices, when we begin to understand the kinds of ideas and disciplines uh, around the emergence of the office. And so the early office was really dedicated to processing, to efficiency, to bureaucracy, and basically the principles of the factory floor were transposed into a new environment. And the key figure here is a man called Frederick Taylor, who was really at the dawn of the 20th century, the godfather, if you like, of time and motion studies. Uh, He was an American engineer who understood that you could uh, measure productivity by seeing how long it took somebody to open an envelope and make a stamp or do a basic administrative task. And he had armies of overseers in frock coats with stopwatches who were measuring the performance of people. And he organized space, furniture, in order to improve efficiency and make people work faster. And I go into all of this because this is an incredibly enduring concept. Efficiency theory, if you like, is surprisingly durable, and you can still see it in organizations today. And before Frederick Taylor and the modern office, there were workplaces. The 19th century Victorian clerk had a beautiful roll-top desk. They were master of their own domain, and life was fairly leisurely. But then along came the industrial principle being applied to white-collar work, and offices became bigger, they became more mechanical. And we saw the tailorist office. and this is the first big wave
0: of of workplace development. Well, we obviously don't have people standing over people in offices with stopwatches these days. That wouldn't go down too well, would it? Nevertheless, you feel that efficiency management, efficiency optimization is still a driving principle today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the two, Guiding lights of Taylorism was clarity around the task and clarity to be able to see how people were performing and optimization of resources. And clarity and optimization are still are the two biggest things in offices. They also cause a lot of problems. And successive waves of, of workplace change were trying to address the disconnect between what the organization
0: wanted and what the individual was capable of doing. So how did it develop from that very industrial, hard-nosed initial approach?
1: The birth of the modern office, what I would call the Taylorist office, was was based on the east coast of America, um, in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. Real estate prices in city centres went through the roof, and we had taller and taller buildings. And the modern office, the efficient office, was a kind of an American phenomenon that was Exported elsewhere. The next phase of the office, which I call the social democratic office, that originated after 1945, the 1950s, and 1960s in Northern Europe. Northern Europe was trying to get over a shattering world war. There were much more social democratic ideals. There was a focus away from efficiency towards community, towards the ideas that people needed to work together. Employers in office-based industries were also competing with the owners of factories and mines in an era of full employment it's hard to imagine nowadays but they were competing uh, for people and they did it not by offering higher wages but by offering more congenial conditions and it was in this environment that you had a series of democratic design experiments in Scandinavia in Holland in Germany where the QuickBorner team developed this idea of bureau landhaft office landscaping and you would put people next to each other in spaces these were the people who needed to communicate with each other there were potted plants there was there were asymmetric layouts so it looked less like a factory human factors came into it and gradually you know over many many years you began to see, these corporate palaces with water features and biophilia and central boulevards and courtyards and coffee shops. And you began to see the social democratic ideal of a community of practice. And, and this is where, if you look at famous buildings like Niels Torp's headquarters for Scandinavian Airlines, just outside Stockholm in 1988, or a decade before Hermann Hertzberger, Did an insurance company in Applebaum in Holland, you you begin to see a change away from the brute raw economics of Taylorism towards something that is much more collegiate and and community-based. But of course, these were, in many cases, quite expensive to build, and they were quite monolithic in that you couldn't adjust them easily. And so By the turn of the century, even the social democratic ideal was looking a bit weary, It was looking a bit tired, and people were looking for something else. And so we had the third wave of the office. We had the Taylorist wave, we had the social democratic wave, and the third wave was really the networked office, people working with new technology. They were working free from the boundaries of place and space, and they were working anywhere. And the office became just one node in their network, and they maybe used several offices in the course of carrying out the functions of a single job. So the office became network. So we've gone from the office as a machine, about efficiency, to the office as a community, place space, to the office as a network, and that network could
0: have physical nodes and also digital nodes. Would that include a couple of major trends, which over the past few years have become much more important? Activity-based working, or ABW, and the other three-letter acronym that we're all very, very familiar with now, WFH. Do both of those fit in with this networked office?
1: They were beginning to. So activity-based working is really what happens when you go into the office. And of course, in both the Social Democratic and especially the Taylorist office, you sat at a desk, you were chained to a desk, and uh, that was your desk, and uh, you worked at it for a set number of hours. With activity-based working, you're not chained to one desk. The organization provides a whole range of settings, and you go to a setting for the activity that you want to do. So you might want to go into a quiet zone, into a cell-like space to do some quiet, considerative work. Or you may want to interact with others, so you move out into a collaboration zone. And that's what activity-based working is all about. But it is based in an office. Working from home, of course, is working from home and having the technology to access data that's now in the cloud. So offices are really kind of hollowed out, if you like, because computer rooms used to be guarded by men in white coats. Now everything's in the cloud. The data isn't on the premises. The whole notion of time and place and space has been completely disrupted in the modern age. And COVID has been a kind of enforced experiment in speeding up all of these trends, but they were already there with the networked office. Once we moved from the social democratic era and and companies began to uh, experiment with networked office strategies, then you had the seeds
0: that have really come to fruition with the COVID-19 crisis. Kind of lucky really that we had made that move because you can imagine what would happen if we had still been in Taylorist industrial offices and Covid hit. That would just be a full stop. Let's talk for a moment about the different types of office space in the social democratic phase and through to the network phase. It's not all the same, is it? I remember you worked with me on the BBC radio programme I made a few years back called The Curse of Open Plan. It does seem that some architects and interior designers think it should all be the same, which is open plan, but it doesn't have to be. What are the kinds of space and the kinds of work that people have to do in offices now? Well, one of the aspects of social democracy
1: that has not worn so well is the idea of the universal plan. And people became obsessed with this concept of a kind of faux egalitarianism, if you like, So that the chief executive would sit in the same open plan office at the same desk in the same chair as the most junior member of staff. Because the Taylorist offices had rewarded the bosses and punished the underlings, if you like, who had the worst equipment and the worst space and the least amount of natural light and and so on and so forth. Whereas the bosses had the perimeter offices in these big New York uh, skyscrapers. So... In the social democratic era, this universal plan, everybody gets the same. But actually, people aren't the same. If you're a chief executive, you have far more one-to-one meetings and confidential things to talk about than somebody who's, who's just working you know, in a fairly junior role. So it's a falsehood to suggest that you have the same space and equipment because you're having the same workplace experience. You're not. Open plan as a concept was meant to provide choice. It was meant to be collegiate. It was meant to improve communication. But then a different agenda took over, that of cost cutting and efficiency. And we we kind of tilted back into the Taylorist era. And what we've had over the last 20 years is inexpensive prime locations. We've had hyper densification of office space. And that's caused all kinds of problems, especially around acoustics, noise, disruption, distraction, and so on. COVID has accelerated some trends, but it's dislocated others. I don't think we will in any great hurry, go back to high density open plan. People were already complaining about the detrimental effects on performance. I think the the spell has worn off now, but the first few months of lockdown, people were really quite pleased to be at home because they could actually get something done. And offices were very, very, very difficult, especially from an acoustic perspective. And I've experienced this myself in, in various environments. So there were aspects of the social democratic experiment which have worn very well and others which haven't. If you go back to Herman Miller's action office, The first furniture system designed by Robert Props for Herman Miller, which was about helping the knowledge worker who was fairly newly defined to do knowledge work, which was a mix of collaborative and solo work and involved figuring things out. So they might want to pin things up on a board and, and so on and so forth. This was the first furniture system to do it. And actually... You know, it's one of the great tragedies in the history of workplace design. The Action Office, which was such a brilliant idea, they took the components and folded them in on themselves and they created the office cubicle. And we all know from Dilbert and (laughs) other examples of popular culture that the cubicle
0: has been a bit of a disaster. Yes, not where we want to end up. And of course, there's a major social cost to the office, notwithstanding the types of space that might be In there, open plan, social space, quiet working space, meeting space, and so forth, there's a huge cost to it, which is millions and millions of people spending hours and hours going to it and going home from it. What's the benefit of people being in an office now? And let's start looking forward in the post-COVID future. I think
1: that the longer we're away from offices, the more we begin to see their qualities, especially well-designed offices. The workplace has never just been about work. The workplace is a place where a lot of us meet our partners for life, meet our friends, tap into something that's bigger than yourself, be part of a community. And people enjoy work, not necessarily for the intrinsic quality or reward of the work itself, but for the contextual stuff around it. And I think people are missing being part of something bigger, talking to colleagues, having lunch with them, hearing the latest news, getting a sense of what other people are thinking. You can do that online to some extent, but it's much more visceral, it's much more personable. And so I think people will return to the office but you're absolutely right. They're not going to go to an office, travel every day to an office, to sit at a desk, to send emails and go online and talk to people through a digital medium, because they can do that from home or they can do that from a third space. I think local flexible space, you know, co-working lounges and so on, they're going to be very popular in the future. So what's the office for? Well, I think it's going to be a kind of elevated forum for face-to-face interaction the digital channel is the digital channel and the office is the face-to-face human channel and we're going to go to offices we're going to book our time carefully we're not going to travel in every day and we are going to go in for big project kickoff meetings for training for mentoring for social activities for team building activities And we're going to go in for a reason. So the offices are going to become a bit more like hotel lounges. They're going to pay much more attention to air quality, to acoustics, to standards of furnishings. They're going to go up market, I think. And the food's going to be better. And it's going to be much more of a curated experience. I think this is where offices and the hospitality sector begin to merge to some extent. We're talking through the WorkTech network to various real estate directors of companies. And nobody's making great leaps at the moment because things are still very uncertain, but they're talking about head offices as hubs for culture and hubs for face-to-face interaction.
0: Well, that's fascinating. I imagine there still will be room for side-by-side working where collaboration, serendipity, the odd comment passed across the desk, those kind of thing, are considered to be important. Would you still see traditional office working like that still existing? How do we engineer digital
1: serendipity? That's very, very difficult. I mean, I do, you know, through my Royal College of Artwork, I do a lot of teaching online now. And it's very, very difficult. Because if you say something to one person, the whole class hears it. Whereas in real time, in physical educational setting. You could take a student aside and have a quiet word and nobody else hears, but you can't have a quiet word. So I think there are barriers. There's also a broader issue around what remote working is doing to our brains. I've been interviewing neuroscientists recently, and they say that we're all suffering from what they call deprivation of the neural networks. Our brains need a certain amount of electrochemical hits To kind of function properly but when you spend all day on endless exhausting video calls some parts of your brain are working overtime and others are idling and doing nothing and you're suffering from sensory and cue deprivation you don't see the whole body you can't hear the voice in all its resonance you're shorn of context there might be a time lapse delay there's a sensory deprivation there and and what it's happening is that we're deprived of these hits to our system. You know, when you commute, it can be awful, but sometimes you can sit on a train and look out the window and wander through Waterloo Station and see interestingly dressed people and people rush past you with flowers and you wonder what, where they're going.
0: And your brain is firing
1: and you're not getting that sitting at home staring at a screen.
0: Some really interesting things you've brought up there. One is the importance of variation. I mean, we're sitting staring at the same screen in the same room, different people maybe, but variation is definitely lacking. In the other one, I remember you saying when we did that BBC documentary about open plan offices that the rules hadn't been established. There wasn't an etiquette of, for example, not standing behind somebody having a chat when they're trying to work. Well, the same is true for WFH, I guess, and particularly with video conferencing That lack of etiquette is is also there. I saw that the phrase of 2020 was, you're on mute. Many people still don't know how to use the technology particularly well, and as you say, the missing cues are a legion. So is the office effectively good for well-being simply by introducing those two things, variation and stimulus, the social interaction that we need, and a change in environment, which is probably good for us.
1: Well, I think it is, and it creates some um, separation between work and life. There was a very interesting study last summer from IBM, and they, they did a very big survey where they asked the same questions of the bosses as more junior members of staff. And, of course, the senior executives thought they'd done a great job pivoting to digital they, they were really patting themselves on the back and feeling pleased and relieved that they'd managed to keep their organizations running while shutting down their offices. And they were very pleased about that. And um, they talked to the more junior people and they were burnt out and bored and unsupported and felt undervalued and hadn't been given the right tools. Or if they'd been given the tools, they hadn't been trained in them properly. And there was a complete disconnect between what the senior and the junior people thought. And there is a lot of evidence we're seeing through the WorkTech network of overwork. You know, you may save yourself two hours in commuting every day, but you should really give yourself an extra hour to your family and an extra hour maybe to work, but people are giving it all to work and they don't know when to switch off. Switching off and getting away from it requires a lot of self-discipline. And people don't have their own dedicated home offices where they can shut the door and leave it all behind. It's on their kitchen table. In many cases, it's on the end of the bed. So it's not ideal for people. A lot of young people, their office environment in terms of furnishings, light, space, volume, is probably far better, especially if you're living in an expensive city like London or San Francisco your workspace is is probably nicer than than your home space. So wouldn't you want to go back to it? A lot of young people do.
0: So a couple of things again there that kind of speak for the need for offices, the quality, which is probably going to be better for many, many people, Um, the quality of the building and the surroundings, especially if employers are going to start curating that experience and considering qualities of light and colour. And of course, I would say sound very much and, and recruiting on those things indeed. And the other thing which I think you've mentioned that's critical is boundaries. Because we're in this always on world where people think nothing of doing email at 11 o'clock at night in bed and not talking to their partners, where you know it's very difficult to get away from being expected to be there all the time and on immediately to everything. I mean, you and I grew up in a world where people used to send letters and you'd expect an answer in a week, not seven seconds or something. So that boundary conversation, is, I think is a really important one where we move ourselves to a separate location and that's where we work. And then when we come home, we're at home. I wonder if we can rediscover that. And do you think the modern office, or the post-networked office, the post-COVID office is gonna be able to give us that sense of boundary? Well, I think there will be a post-COVID office, and
1: I think there's been a lot of defeatist talk in, in, in the global property industry that people aren't going to take offices, they're going to slash the proportion of space. I think there will be some cutting back, but I think there'll be more like 10%, 15% than 30 or 40% that some of the doom mongers have come up with. And I think in, in slightly smaller footprints, companies are going to spend more money. They're going to soundscape them. They're going to put in biophilia. They're going to put in better furniture, more amenities. The question that we're asked right around our network is what amenities should be put in. There's going to be higher quality, healthier food. There's going to be proper air filtration systems. As I said earlier, I think the office is going to have an uplift because it's going to be the human channel. So I think the post-COVID office is definitely going to be an improvement on the pre-COVID office. High density, low spec, not great. Everyone on the hamster wheel. We're going to have to rethink commuting because I think this virus or that virus is is going to be around. Never again are we going to underestimate in the West. They never underestimated in the Asia-Pacific area, by the way, the, the potential for a deadly public health emergency. So I think that we're going to have to rethink staggered hours, four-day weeks. We're going to look at public transport in a new way. I read a report from the RAC which said for the first time for however many years, people said they were going to use their cars more for work in the future and not less because they don't want to go on public transport and be crammed in. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes and some of them are going to be beneficial. We've got to keep a sense of proportion about the future of the workplace. It's not going to disappear, but it's going to change. We've been in the tailorist efficiency era. We've been in the social democratic era. We've been in this kind of networked era, and and I think COVID has tilted us into a fourth a fourth dimension of workplace. We don't know what that's going to be, but it, it it's not going to be daily attendance,
0: it's going to be something else. Well, I think the way you've described the office of the future, it sounds quite appealing. So maybe out of the agony of COVID, some good will come. Jeremy, this has been really interesting and I hope for anybody listening, it's pointed the way to at least think about the way your office is going to change. Is there somewhere where people can go to learn more about you, your books and your work? If you go to
1: www.worktechacademy.com, uh, that's the website of the Worktech Academy, which is really a global community to bring together the best academic and scientific research with with practitioners who are working in in the global workplace industry. And of course, you, Julian, are a, a long-standing and a very valuable one. And we have a lot of people uh, like you who are expert in particular domains and fields. We're trying to build a community that includes architects and developers and end users and and, and specialists and researchers
0: to try and think what the post-COVID office uh, could be because I think it could be something very positive. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today and we'll put all those links as always onto our podcast page. And I look forward to your further thoughts, Jeremy, as the world develops and the office continues to morph. For now, Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, I found that quite an inspiring chat and uh, quite reassuring also. It's nice to think that perhaps there are going to be a few benefits coming out of the awful experience of COVID in 2020. Maybe we're moving to a more civilized, more functional, more intelligent use of office space. Who knows? That's the first of several conversations we're going to have on this subject, and hopefully they'll all be just as fascinating as this one. Thanks for listening. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.